Mark Brandy is an award-winning crime novelist whose fifth book, Southern Aurora, as one reviewer noted, take hold of your heart, break it a little, as well as fill it with childlike hope and compassion. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and on Binge Reading Today, author Mark Brandy talks about how his own experience as an Italian-born Australian has attracted him to write stories about young boys coming of age in hard times. Like Jimmy, his lead in Southern Aurora, character who, as one critic said, was impossible not to fall in love with. There's a Mark Twain innocence and inner wisdom to Jimmy, one far beyond most adults as he scouts his underprivileged life, seeking meaning and dreaming of a larger existence. That's coming up with Mark in just a moment or two. For our giveaway this week, we've got the Book Sweep's ultimate Murder She Wrote swag pack and book basket draw. For mystery fans, what a prize. $550 worth in full value, a library of mysteries, and Murder She Wrote swag, including an adorable Angela Lansbury t-shirt and tote bag. Enter the draw on the show notes for this episode on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. And remember, if you enjoy the show, leave us a review so others will find us too. Word of mouth is the best way for others to discover the show and great books they will love to read. But now here's Mark. Hello there, Mark, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Hi, Jenny. It's great to be with you. Thanks for inviting me on. Southern Aurora is the book we're talking about particularly today. It's your fifth novel, but it's set in similar locations to the first books that you've written. They're all small-town rural Australia with characters who generally live on the wrong side of town. They're seen as literary crime novels, that's how they're defined, but the crime aspect in Southern Aurora is slightly downplayed. It's more of a coming-of-age novel. Would you agree with that? Yeah, look, I think that's a fair assessment, Jenny. But it's funny with my novels, if I go back to the first one, Wimra, which came out in 2017, which is also set in a small town, has elements of crime in it. But when I wrote it, I never really thought about it as being a crime novel. In fact, I'd actually never read a crime novel before I wrote my first book. It came as a bit of a shock to me when my publisher started marketing it as a crime and as literary crime and saying it was in a similar vein to Jane Harper's The Dry. And so I went out and busily read a whole lot of crime books, lest I come across as an imposter. But I suppose I've never really thought deeply about genre when I'm drafting. My starting point always is character and voice. So in this case, with Southern Aurora, with this boy, Jimmy, who's around 11 or 12 years old, as you say, growing up on the wrong side of the tracks in this small town, 
his story actually started for me as a, a short story. I wrote this short story back in, I think it was around 2014, and it was actually based on some experiences I had growing up in a small town. We had a dog who came to an unfortunate end. So I wrote a short story based on that experience and fictionalized it, of course. And I suppose I, I kept going back to it and thinking there's some more to this. There's something about this, which is scratching at me and I need to go further into this story. And that's where it began. I think that that age, that kind of 11 or 12 years old is a really crucial age. And for Jimmy, his friends are his whole world. His siblings are his whole world and his family. And he's the kind of kid that takes the world on his shoulders to a large extent. So I felt really compelled to follow him and to write his story. I was thinking yesterday, I remember reading this quote from William Faulkner, and he talked about the writing process somewhat facetiously. He said that writing is easy. You just make up these characters and then you follow them around and write what they do. And I, it resonates with me a bit because that's the way I feel about my process. I never think about the overarching story at the very beginning. I never think about genre. But crime comes into my stories at some point. But I th think you're correct that this book perhaps has less of a crime element to it and fewer of those kind of tropes that you sometimes associate with crime novels. Yeah. What is it that attracts you about telling the story through a child's eyes, do you think? <laughs> I think my psychologist could probably answer <laughs> me sometimes. I, I, yeah, it's, now, my, my first book, Wimra, was third-person perspective, but the first half of the book was very much focused on these two kids, Ben and Fab. The Rip was a, an adult. It was set in Melbourne, contemporary, but the others was told through diary entries, through this young boy, Jacob, and now, of course, Southern Aurora. And after I finished the others, my third book, I thought, oh, that, that was really hard going. Like, I, I found that a really tough book to write and I promised myself at that stage that I wasn't going to do another first person perspective of a child because I find it really tough because you've got a limited palette to work with vocabulary and their worldliness and all those sorts of things, but you need to be able to still craft a compelling story for an adult readership. And I think that's where the crux of it and some of the appeal of it is for me because it's a challenge. It's a constraint. And one of the things I love about that kind of perspectives is that the reader will often feel a degree of protectiveness over the protagonist. And they'll be reading a little bit ahead and a little bit more deeply into what is happening and thinking, oh, I know, Jimmy, don't think that. Well, don't go there. Don't go with that person or this is a bad move. And you take on almost like a caring relationship with the character. And I love that as a reader. Like when I think about books and some of the books I love by Sophie Laguna or Tony Birch or the American writer, Willie Lawton, who also writes young protagonists, I, I just get engrossed in that world and I care so deeply about the characters. So that that's probably why I write these kinds of books, because that's what I love to read, ultimately. 
the cruelty of the schoolyard is one aspect of this story. And he falls out with the friends that he has and he's left in this very isolated position. He resorts to going to the library at lunchtime because he doesn't have anyone to sit with. And that's a scenario that I think many of us can identify with at some stage or other in our lives. I know that part of your story was that you came to Australia from Italy when you were quite a young person. And I wondered if you had that sense of being an outsider or at least a bit different and whether that's helped you to be able to frame these sorts of stories. That it was very much my experience. You hit the nail on the head. I, growing up in a small town in Australia, in Western Victoria, we were the only Italian family in town. I had three older brothers. They weren't born in Italy. I was born in Italy. And it, it was tough in the schoolyard. I was the brown kid in the schoolyard. And I found that really difficult in my primary school years. Again, I think that that's probably a, a psychologist could answer for me because I guess I do feel a, a strong ability to be able to write that kind of perspective because I know what that, that feels like. And now I don't want to say that Jimmy is me or that me as a child or anything like that, because I feel most of my characters there, they've got elements of me in them for sure. It, part of them is people I've met, but also just pure creation, something out of my subconscious. But that was certainly an experience that, that I drew on that sense of being an outsider. There's that cliche in country towns that you're only a local once you've got two or three generations in the cemetery. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was our experience. Now I loved growing up in a country town in many respects, there were great elements to it. It was that bucolic cliche in some respects of being let out the front door in the morning. Your parents don't take care where you go. As long as you're back by night, we would go rabbiting, we'd go fishing, yabbing and all that sort of stuff, play sport with our friends. So that was all great. But certainly those early years of primary school were very tough. And I think that undoubtedly leaves a mark on you. And I think that again, is probably part of the reason why I write that child's point of view and while I'm in, interested in writing about that experience, because those early years of our life have a huge formative effect on the kind of people that we become. And I can remember some of the things that happened when I was a kid and certainly the intensity of the relationships that I had with my friends with greater clarity than what I could remember doing last week sometimes. And I think that that was something I wanted to bring to the book is for Jimmy, his relationship with his best mate, Danny, is really crucial. He's his one friend at school. And then this other kid enters the frame, Chadwick, who's a good kid, but it shifts the dynamic between these two friends. And that was something I wanted to explore because Kids can be great. Kids can be wonderful, but they can be very, very cruel as well. And Jimmy's faced with that in the story is he has to learn some pretty difficult life lessons. The Southern Aurora of the title is a train and it represents something of escape from that life for Jimmy, doesn't it? Tell us a bit about Southern Aurora. Yeah. So the Southern Aurora was a train that used to run from Melbourne to Sydney and Sydney to Melbourne. 
And for Jimmy living in this fictional town of Mittagunda in New South Wales, he sees the train coming and going and passing through. It has its kind of luxury, quote unquote, carriages, sleeper carriages, and it represents something, I suppose, a ray of hope for him that there's something more to life and something more outside of the town that he's growing up in and something more than the experiences that he's facing. And part of my inspiration, again, came a little bit unplanned. It came a little bit, I think, from my subconscious when I was writing. I think that the train was very similar to a train that went through the town that I grew up in, in Western Victoria in the 1980s, which was the Overland. And that used to run from Adelaide to Melbourne and vice versa. And I was always transfixed by this train going through. This is all pre-internet days and you didn't know much about the outside world or the big cities. I didn't really go to the big cities and neither does Jimmy in this story. So it represents something more, something else out there. And it really offers him an array of hope. And he often goes down there to the cutting, goes with his younger brother, Sam, and watches the train and looks at the people in the carriage and he tells Sam one day that'll be, it'll be us on that train. That felt very important to me because he's facing some tough circumstances. His mum is doing it tough. She has issues with alcohol. She has this new boyfriend who's quite violent and erratic. His older brother, Mick, has been in trouble with the police, is in jail, soon to get out. Things aren't easy for him in his world. So it's, it was very important to me to have that kind of, I guess, symbol of hope for him. Yeah, I found it touching. You mentioned his mum's attachment to alcohol. She drinks a beer called, I think it is a beer, isn't it? The Kaiser. Uh, the, it's wine. It's a cast oh, wine. Oh, yeah. cast wine. Sorry. Yeah. And Kaiser is like another character in the story. To Jimmy, Kaiser is like a friend that comes to family parties and he recognizes sometimes isn't a good friend, but the Kaiser has a real personality in the story as well. Yes. And I should say that I grew up in a pub, so I was very familiar with alcohol and the many different brands of alcohol and what they might represent. And it was funny that my parents were in this pub for about 30 years and we would have people in, in country towns, you have people from all walks of life coming in. They're, they're very democratic places, you know, local police politicians, shearers, farmers, business people, alcoholics, chronic drinkers, the unemployed, some people who just gotten out of jail, all sorts of stories. And I suppose I witnessed those kind of really dependent relationships with alcohol when I was a kid, but it, it was quite normalized to me. I never I saw it as a stigma in that way. I, I thought these are just people, that's what they come to the pub and drink during the day and then they go home. And that's okay. And one of the things my late father really impressed upon me was that everyone has a story and it's really important that you stop and listen to them and talk to them. So that was a great lesson because he would put me, when I got old enough, I worked behind the bar. I was a deeply introverted young person. So that was tough for me, but he'd say, go talk to the regulars, have a chat to them. And some of them are just lonely and hear them out. That was just wonderful advice. And it taught me that some people just have had a bit of bad luck 
and things haven't worked out well for them. And there can be a whole lot of complex reasons why people turn to alcohol. Now for Jimmy looking at his mum and the Kaiser, yeah, it, it does become a character of its own and it's this presence throughout the novel really to varying degrees. And it's symbolic as well of Jimmy's attempts to try to help everyone in his circle, but also sometimes try to control things a little bit too much for a young kid. He tries to look out for his mum, make sure that she doesn't drink too much. Things go well with her new boyfriend. He takes this all on his own shoulders. And that's a, a really tough thing for anyone, let alone a young boy. Mm, it's a classic case of children becoming the parent. And it's recognised that's not a healthy place for a kid to be. He's obviously a young boy deserving of more support than he gets. But the tone of the book is carefully neutral about assigning any kind of blame anywhere. And he's dreaming of his life getting better, but he is stoically accepted it as it is as well. I wonder, tell me how you viewed Jimmy. Do you think he ended up having a good adult life? <laughs> uh, I remember it might have been one of my tutors when I was studying, like in a TAFE course, I was doing creative writing. I'd started this course about 10 years ago, did it for about 12 months, and it was after a, a long, a pretty long career working in government, working in the justice system for a large part of that. And I started this writing course. And I had this great teacher, Walwitz, her name was. She's now passed away. She's a, a poet and a performance artist. And she talked about, and I loved this description, she talked about the best endings being like gateways through which you see the world a bit differently and you can imagine the characters going off beyond the page and what they're doing now or where they might be or what they might be up to. I think with Jimmy, it's interesting what you said about the kind of neutrality that I tried to bring to this book, because it's very important to me not to be didactic, not to be trying to write stories with a quote unquote message. I, I want to tell a compelling story about people in a given situation that's hopefully and engrossing for a reader. What a reader takes away from that is entirely up to them. I'm always very careful not to direct readers in particular directions, but I think part of the atmosphere that I'm writing these stories in is one of increasing inequality and disadvantage here in Australia and housing is a huge issue. The gaps between the very wealthy and the poor are widening and the ability of people to escape sometimes very difficult situations is getting harder and harder. So even though this book is set in the mid-1980s, these issues are still there and if anything are probably more acute now. As for Jimmy, I hope he's doing okay. That's all I can really say. In my work in the justice system, you would just would see, oh, I worked in the corrections area for a while. I was a ministerial advisor and a lot of what we learned about the corrections system is that people just cycle through again and again. And often it's from situations of high disadvantage. I think we see that to some extent with Jimmy's older brother, Mick, because he has his repeated contact with the police and then in ending up in prison. I have higher hopes 
for Jimmy, that's about all I'm willing to wager at this point. I'm not sure where he'd end up, but I hope he's doing okay. You mentioned The Rip, your second novel, and that was one where you had an adult protagonist, but she was a homeless woman. And we had skirted around this. There's definitely that underlying tone of social justice concerns, but you are very light-handed with them, aren't you? Again, it comes back to what I like to read. Anytime I get the sense that an author is trying to sell me a message or teach me something, I recoil. I think you have to treat readers with the utmost respect. One of the best pieces of advice I've ever gotten was don't underestimate the intelligence of your reader. You've got to really respect them. In saying all that, there's definitely this social justice theme. It was partly why I ended up working in government and doing the jobs that I, that I did was because I, as some people might derisively say, I was a bit of a believer and I wanted to improve things for people. I cared about my work and I cared about trying, I suppose, to make the community a fairer place for people with more opportunity. I, I found that tough going sometimes in my professional life, but it was also very rewarding work, even though it was difficult. I find in all express some of that feeling in my work and I can follow those themes, but, but they're not front of mind when I'm writing with each book and using the example of the rip, that was probably as much a response again to some of the atmosphere at the time I wrote it, because here in Melbourne, we had and continue to have a big issue with homelessness and what happened around the time that I was drafting that, which was 2017, 2018, is that it really hit the headlines because a lot of homeless people had set up camp in the CBD because there was some services there. And the media took a particular, some of the media took a particular angle on that, saying that this was an embarrassment to the city and these people should be moved out. And they had photos and they continue to do this, in fact, have photos of people shooting up on the street. And I just thought, oh, this really, it broke my heart a little bit because it just seemed to reflect a real, I suppose, a lack of compassion for people who are doing it tough. And I was interested in their stories. Now, I had some contact with people over the years who found themselves in tough circumstances through, through my work and also just in my personal life. And so I just, I felt really compelled to write a story from the perspective of someone who's living on the streets and in, in the area that I'm living in now, which is a lovely area, we've got a park not far away, Prince's Park, and you'd often see joggers running around there and everyone going about their business. And then there was people sleeping rough underneath the back of a grandstand and pretty much everyone just turned a blind eye. I think that's, I don't say that is a kind of cold heartedness of people. I think a lot of people just don't understand or can't cope with seeing that sort of suffering. And I wanted to give some kind of insight into that, but not 
presented as a sympathy story or anything like that. It was very important to me that the main character, Danny, that she, she had real self-respect and pride and she didn't make excuses for her situation. I think the the line that she said in the novel was, these aren't excuses, they're reasons. And there's a difference between reasons and excuses. And I think to some extent, that's true. There were very definite reasons why she was in the situation that she was in. But I don't write books thinking I'm going to change the world. But at the same time, it's wonderful. <laughs> like I've gotten emails from people who've read The Rip who told me how it changed their view about people in their local area who were perhaps sleeping on the street or begging or just facing really tough situations. And that just blew my mind. Don't expect that through my writing, but it's certainly a wonderful byproduct, I think. And it's part of the beauty of literature is that it enables you to see the world through someone else's eyes. Yeah. You mentioned your dad, who sounds like he was a very wise innkeeper. And you wrote a beautiful tribute to him in the Sydney Morning Herald Good Weekend magazine. He died during COVID lockdown, which was particularly poignant for you. And you titled the piece, Grief Invites This Kind of Magical Thinking. Could you tell us about that? Oh, look, my dad, he was, uh, sorry, just a bit emotional about it, but he was a very unique man. It was a quintessential migrant story. He came over to Australia with nothing, just a suitcase and managed to make a go of it and as you say, he became an innkeeper, ran his own pub, and he did a lot of different things in his life. He was always very entrepreneurial and had a lot of self-belief. And I think it was one of the great legacies for us as kids, because he basically told us anything you want to do in life, you can do it. Just give it a shot. And he's part of the reason why I'm a writer. Yeah, losing him during COVID lockdowns was very hard. It was a terrible time for everyone. The magical thinking in that piece, I used to see in my area, which is next to the cemetery where my father's buried, I used to see foxes quite often at night when I was walking around in lockdown and they came to symbolize something for me and something connected with my father because when we're growing up in the country, we had a farm. And we also, at one point, we, in one of the traps set at the farm, we caught a fox and my father, he took the fox home and we kept it as a pet and basically looked after it. And so that was a real eye-opener for me as a kid, but it was confusing because I thought, hang on, we've set these traps on the farm to protect our sheep from the foxes, that then he's caught the fox and he's saying we should look after it. So it was one of the first insights that I had into the complexity of my father and some of the complexities of the adult world as well. It was a really beautiful thing to see these foxes around. They live in the cemetery and, and it was a, a privilege to be able to write about that and to write about my father in that way for the newspaper and pay some small tribute to him because we, just as a lot of people did, did a funeral and during lockdown, which we could only have 10 people there. So his grandchildren couldn't come. It was a terribly sad time for all of us, but certainly in our family, that was tough. But to be able to write about it and to have people connect with the story is a beautiful thing. 
I think it's inspired at least the idea of a documentary film. Has anything gone ahead with that? There is some work happening. There's a guy over in the UK, a film producer, who is trying to raise money at the moment. As you, I'm sure it's, it could be hard. Probably the film industry is even tougher than the publishing industry in a lot of respects to make projects happen. But he's working assiduously on that. At the right. same time, I think the, the others, my third book has been optioned recently. So there's some film interest in that. But all the planets need to align for anything to happen in the film world, but I've got my fingers crossed. Well, fantastic. We always like to ask our guests about their own reading habits, and we'd love to hear a couple of thoughts from you on books you'd like to recommend for listeners. Oh, this year, one of my favourite reads has been a book by an Australian author, Stephanie Bishop, and it's called The Anniversary, and it's a wonderful literary novel Possibly it could be classified as literary crime. It certainly has a crime in it. And Stephanie is just a beautiful writer at the sentence level. It was one of those books where I found myself rereading passages and pages, going back and rereading them again because they just took my breath away. I'm in awe of writers who can do that. And you don't come across books. I certainly don't anyway many books that really make me stop and reflect and go, wow, this is a book by a, a writer who has just sublime gifts. I highly recommend that at the anniversary. One book I'm reading at the moment, which is a, an old one, is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kesey, which was a gift to me. My brother gave to me. It's an old secondhand book from a secondhand bookshop, but I love those old secondhand books. It's got the very 70s style cover it really takes you back and uh, it's a very immersive story i'm sure many of your listeners probably have read the book and if not have seen the film which is fantastic with jack nicholson i'd only ever seen the film so it's always great to read the source material and get a different insight into a story that you love which i love that film and if i'm really interested in how you made the transition from your life in the justice system to becoming a writer, how did that transfer occur? And was it a light bulb moment where you thought, oh, I must just must write? How did that come about? Yeah, I loved books and I loved writing and writing came quite easily to me as a kid. I think I grew up in a family of storytellers too, like my older brothers and my dad were big storytellers, verbal storytellers. And I was surrounded with the books as well that my brothers read. My eldest brother was into Stephen King. So I read a lot of his books at an age where I was probably <laughs> too young to be reading them. But even comic books, the one my brothers was into. So I, I was su surrounded with a lot of books and a lot of reading. And I loved writing in school. But I guess I reached a point where, you know, growing up in a small town, when you're looking at career options. We, we had a gold mine in the town. We had a, an abattoir and then there was the family business, the pub. So my parents were very insistent that I go to uni and try to make something of myself. And I initially studied law, which I dropped out of. And after a lot of failed courses, eventually finished a criminal justice degree. So a lot of it was really just pragmatism that I ended up working in those areas because I couldn't see how writing could be 
a career, like a creative, I could have a creative career. I didn't really see a pathway for that. But I suppose I, I did reach a point where I felt like I'd had enough of working in an office environment and I wanted to do something new and I wanted to give writing a crack. And I saw a career counsellor who recommended that I try that and go part-time. I had a mortgage at that stage. It was really difficult. And so I ended up, this is a bit of a strange story, but I ended up, funnily enough, going on a game show here in Australia. And my brother recommended it to me. It was a millionaire hot seat. And... I was terrified and I went on onto this game show. I thought I'd just humiliate myself and everyone would see it, but I was lucky enough to win one a modest amount of money. I didn't win the top prize or anything like that, anywhere near, but it did enable me to go part-time at work and then start doing the writing course at TAFE. And so that was really where it began and I never set out. I never went into that writing course thinking I'm going to write a novel. I just thought I'll do this course and I'll just see what interests me, what I enjoy, if anything really connects with my skills and what I want to do. And I tried to be as open-minded as possible. I studied short story there, corporate writing, all sorts of different facets of writing. And we had a lot of great teachers who were writers themselves. And so I think partly just the kind of hothouse of that environment and, and also the informal writing groups that began out of that between fellow students that helped me shape my first novel, Wimmera. Now, when I finished Wimmera, that was rejected initially everywhere. I had an agent, but it got rejected by every publisher twice. Sometimes they rejected it. So it was a disheartening experience, but it was really after winning the debut dagger for an unpublished manuscript over in the UK that really changed things and helped me get that book published, which is where it all started. But it's been an unusual pathway to being a writer, but as I'm sure you find when you speak to authors, every story is different. No one's got a linear path to writing. Everyone's experience is different. And if I hadn't have had that professional experience working in the justice system, if I hadn't have grown up in a pub and met all those people from all walks of life, I don't think I'd, I would be the writer I am now. I couldn't write about the kinds of stories and characters that I do. So all of that experience helps me. Fantastic. Look, I am curious, Millionaire Hot Seat, was it a general knowledge show, show like The Chaser and those ones? Yeah, yeah. It was a trivia show yeah, and yeah. I ended up in the hot seat, as they call it, for just one question. I only had to answer one question on the whole show. So there was a lot of luck. In what luck. was the question? It was about, it was where the Green Lantern, the comic book character, was about where he got his superpowers from. It, it was a multiple choice. So they said his, his power belt, his power ring, there's a couple of other options there. And I, I hadn't read the Green I'd read a lot of comics when I was a kid, but I hadn't read the Green Lantern. So it ended up just being a guess. And so I had a one in four chance and I was enough to get it. It was the power ring. Yeah, I was very fortunate. It's amazing. I felt like, well, I felt like I'd robbed a bank. <laughs> when I, left there, I really felt just, yeah, it was a very surreal experience. 
Looking back down the tunnel of time, if there is one thing about your creative career that you'd change, what would it be? Oh, I think I probably would have stopped a bit more when I went out into the world and uh, was being read and quite well received by readers and reviewers and things like that. I think if I could go back, I would just stop and appreciate those moments more. I, I don't think at that stage, I really understood how fortunate I was. So many great books are published every year by great writers and a lot of books go unpublished as well for a variety of reasons, whether the timing's not right or there's a similar book in a publisher's list. There can be a whole host of factors. I think, I wouldn't say I took it for granted, but I just had no benchmark against which to, to judge my experience. So I looked it and thought, oh, it, this is just normal. This is what happens. But now I look back on it and think, wow, I was incredibly lucky and it was like getting struck by lightning in a lot of ways. So I've learned from that experience. It, in some ways, the reception a book gets though is very much secondary. Always the greatest moments for me in writing is that feeling after whatever number draft it is, it might be draft 15, might be draft 20, wherever I'm up to that feeling that I've got it down, that it's more or less finished, that it's doing the things that I hoped it would do, that, that I've done some sort of justice to the character characters in their story, that feeling of satisfaction, that's what it's all about for me. It's a really great moment. Like I, I love the writing process. It's, it can be really hard, but that is what keeps me at the desk and working. If I was just thinking about those secondary things about winning an award or getting a good review or sales and all that stuff, that's just all out of your control. Really, all you can control is just producing the best work that you can. And anything that happens after that is a bonus, really. So I think I would stop and smell the roses a little bit more is probably the, the, the crux of what I'm saying. That's lovely. And that's a nice place to round things off because we are starting to run out of time. But what does your next 12 months look like? What have you got on your desk and what are you working on? Well, I've got a project which I'm still in the early ideas stage of, and my process, I wouldn't even dignify it by calling it a process. Actually, I've just got a word document that I keep in a folder and I just throw ideas in there as they, they come to me. It's not as though I don't sit down and think about the concept for the next book and go, okay, what's it going to be about? Who are the characters, etc. I have a broad idea about the kind of story I want to write. And then it's a process of just gathering information. And sometimes it can be from the kind of strangest sources. Like I recently subscribed to a philosophy magazine, a new philosopher, which is fantastic. And I read a lot of articles in that, which really opened my mind, I suppose, about different perspectives on how the world works and about our place in it. So the kind of inspirations for what I write can come from pretty unusual sources sometimes. So I'm just trying to keep a open mind at this stage about what that story might be. 
I'm contractually obligated to deliver it to my publisher middle of next year. We'll see how that goes. I'm hopeful of getting there. But, uh, but aside from that, I'm just really focused now on, on going out and meeting readers and doing some events to talk about Southern Aurora, to talk about these characters. And it's, yeah, it's just a wonderful thing because I first started writing this book back in, it was 2015 when I, when I started the novel from that short story. So eight years later, it's wonderful to finally almost have it out in the world. Look, that's wonderful. Actually, that's a great place because the last question we usually do ask is about interacting with readers, where they can find you either online and in person. I presume most of your in-person stuff is in Australia, but are you doing any, any international events? Not at this stage, but I'm hopeful down the track. I'm doing a few events interstate, which would be nice. So my last book came out during the lockdowns during COVID. So I had a, a full schedule laid out, which then got cancelled. So it was a, a bit disheartening and anticlimactic, I would say. So I'm really looking forward to going out and meeting readers. And I'd certainly love to head over to New Zealand at some stage or elsewhere. I went to the Ubud Writers Festival a few years back, and that was wonderful. I think I've seen more of the world and certainly more of Australia through my books and doing events than, than I otherwise would have. So it's a, a definitely an une unexpected benefit of having my books out in the world. Do you communicate online? Where can they find you? Yeah, I'm mostly, so social media can be a bit of a trap for writers, I think, because we can spend too much time in there. So I try to limit that to a, a half an hour or so a day, but I'm mostly found on Instagram. If people just search for Mark Brandy, I think my handle is at MB underscore R-A-N-D-I and likewise on Twitter and Facebook, or if people want to get in touch, they can go to my website too. It's markbrandy.com. There's a contact form there. And that also has all my events as well coming up. So if anyone wants to get along, if they're able, that would be great. I'm always happy to meet readers anywhere, anytime. Marvis, we'll put all of those links in the show notes for this episode as well. So people will be able to find them online as well. So look, fabulous, Mark. Thank you so much for being our guest today. It was really fun to talk. Great. Thanks, Jenny. Loved it. Next week on Binge Reading... Romance author Annabelle Monaghan and Same Time Next Summer, the ultimate summer nostalgia read about an engaged woman who comes face to face with her first love who she hasn't seen in 14 years. It's an unforgettable love story, bursting with the magic of first love. It's everything you want in a summer romance. That's next week on Binge Reading. And remember, just one more reminder, if you enjoy the show, leave us a review so others will find us too. Word of mouth is the best way for people to discover the show and great books they will love to read. That's it for now. See you next time and happy reading.